Welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics Completionist podcast. The only podcast that I know of going through every issue in the DC multiverse, starting from Action Comics number one and moving forward into the future. I'm your host, as always, Nick Byers. Um, I may sound a little bit different. I'm recording in a not typical location because sometimes that's what you got to do to get it done. Uh, and I want to apologize again about holiday week, uh, Christmas week. It got away from me. I had no time to do anything, and that sucks for you, the listener. But uh, I, hopefully I've announced uh, a special thing happening uh, when this episode drops on the 1st, the first day of 2024. But... Let's get into the actual episode. Today we are covering a very a very special issue. Uh, we are covering All-American Comics number 16, the debut of Green Lantern Alan Scott, and Action Comics number 26 with Superman and Zatara. But as always, let's set the scene with some real-world history from when these issues were released and were on news newsstands. So uh, May 18th, 1940, uh, the 6.9 magnitude El Centro earthquake struck southeastern California near the border with Mexico. It caused $6 million in damages, 9 deaths, and 20 injured. And it caused the California cantaloupe crop to be imperiled with only 4 days worth of water. But luckily, rebuilding efforts uh, acted quite quickly to rebuild uh, the canal system, irrigation system, to uh, ensure that the cantaloupes were properly watered. I don't like cantaloupes, but for people who do, that's good. That's lucky. Uh, May 20th, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Cantwell versus Connecticut. Basically, it protected freedom of religion at a state level. Uh, it allowed the freedom of religion from the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights uh, to also work at the state level where... Um, uh, Mormons are basically allowed to, not Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses are, are allowed to uh, proselytize in public without any sort of any sort of permit or anything that would require state uh, approval because you're just allowed to do that because it's freedom of religion. Uh, May 22nd, 1940, Britain passed the Emergency Powers Defense Act of 1940, putting banks, munitions, production, wages, profits, and work conditions under the control of the state. Uh, it's a thing that happens a lot during wartime uh, to, a lot, to ensure that the, uh, the country's infrastructure is being used properly to benefit the war, um, the war effort as much as possible because, obviously, you know, sometimes businesses and things like that would rather not uh, if it's better for their business to not. Uh, although the government is one of the best paying uh, things uh, in, in entities uh, in, in the world. So uh, why you wouldn't want to get government contracts, I don't know. But uh, so that is that is what's going on during the time that these issues are on shelves. Uh, so let's get into the actual issues, uh, and we'll be starting with All-American Comics number 16, released May 21st, 1940, with a cover date of July 1940. We have a debut of Green Lantern Alan Scott, the first Green Lantern, the, the you know, basis of, that all Green Lanterns were built on, sort of, uh, into the, the present, uh, in some sort of way, obviously, in the Silver Age, with the introduction of Hal Jordan, the the Green Lantern is changed to a more cosmic figure rather than a uh, Earth-bound, Earth-based hero uh, that Alan Scott is. Uh, Alan Scott is a train engineer, uh, or a uh, an engineer. Uh, he builds train bridges in this one. This is what he's building um, in this first issue. So I would consider him a train engineer, or at least an engineer in some form. Uh, this issue, this story, was written by Bill Finger and Martin Nodell. Uh, they are the creators of Alan Scott Green Lantern, Bill Finger, obviously, of Batman fame. So let's get into the issue. Uh, the, the cover is uh, somewhat iconic. If you you know, know anything about Golden Age heroes and listen to this podcast, you may not. So it shows... Green Lantern running on a steel girder towards a gangster with a Tommy gun. It says, introducing the Green Lantern across it. Uh, and let's talk about the Green Lantern's costume. He is wearing uh, red boots with these sort of, uh, I would say, Roman sort of ties kind of binding them to his, his calf. 
Uh, green pants, black belt, obviously got to keep his pants up somehow. A red puffy shirt, uh, very much like Seinfeld, with a yellow circle on it with a green uh, train lantern, uh, conductor's lantern uh, on it, uh, with a purple cloak with a green inside uh, with a very high collar, uh, domino mask, and he has uh, blonde hair, as Alan Scott does. Uh, so that's the cover. It's a goofy costume, but uh, let's let's move on from that uh, into the actual issue itself. Uh, it starts off with uh, Alan Scott and an unnamed friend uh, riding in the uh, uh, what is it called locomotive part of a train going over a bridge that Alan Scott has just finished building. Uh, and Alan Scott's friend is talking about a man named Decker who is not one to take it lying down. He'll try something. He's dangerous. Alan Scott says, Nonsense. Just because my company's bid to build this bridge was chosen by the government instead of Decker's is no reason for revenge. He won't try anything. So Decker is a, a rival um, engineering company, train engineering company, bridge engineering, engineering, uh, let me say engineering one more time, engineering company uh, that wanted to build this bridge but he did not get the government bid. Like I said, government work is lucrative, so getting the bid is a, is a big deal. Uh, when suddenly the bridge explodes and the train c- crashes to the ground, uh, Alan Scott miraculously makes it out alive and wakes up seeing everyone else that was on board is dead, including his friend who didn't get a name because he's dead already. And uh, Alan grabs onto this green, this strange green train lantern that is he was inside the cabin with him uh inside the cabin inside the cab what is that part of a train called i don't know we're gonna call it locomotive or cab uh he grabs it and suddenly feels dizzy and passes out the light uh begins to glow with a strange green or it says eerie green light um to swell in radiance from the the flame inside of the lantern and the lantern itself says i am the green flame of life listen chosen one and hear the tale of the green lantern in this in this instance the green lantern is an inanimate object uh so we then cut back to uh ancient china uh it just says old china but uh, i presume it's ancient probably in the hmm probably in the i would say maybe the um, hmm, 1200s maybe? I'm not a Chinese historian, but just looking from the, the garb that they're wearing, it's definitely, it's definitely medieval times, I would say. Uh, medieval being a, a Western phrase, but I'd say maybe anywhere between 1200 and 1500 uh, in terms of years, I would say. Um, but uh, the way these uh, Chinese people are drawn uh is would be deemed racist uh their skin is yellow just straight up uh it's the same color as the text box which is which are yellow in this issue so uh obviously this is from 1940 but uh still very racist thing to do but uh let's talk about what's happening in old china a green strange meteor crashes down into the this area of china and out from it comes a green flame that says, Three times shall I flame green. First to bring death. Second to bring life. Third to bring power. Uh, abrupt, abruptly the flame goes out and the metal begins to cool. Then a man named Chang, the lamp maker, comes up and takes the metal. He takes it into his uh, lamp making shop and begins to form it into... Um, an old-style lamp. The equivalent that I can think of is probably the lamp from Aladdin. It has that sort of curled handle, and it looks a lot like a teapot, although the end is obviously supposed to hold a wick uh, that it has, you know, kerosene or whatever fuel inside, and then it's a lamp uh, like that. I never knew that that's what, how those lamps worked, you know, seeing Aladdin. Uh, I always thought it looked like a, like a tea kettle instead of a lamp, and I was like, that doesn't look anything like a lamp. But I digress. The other uh, townspeople or village uh, villagers uh, think that Chang is evil. 
he reads old volumes about sorcery, uh, and and doing all this stuff with this strange green metal is going to bring the the wrath of the evil one upon them. So they form a posse and go to Chang's shop and uh, burn his books and are destroying his his shop and his things. And the green lamp begins to grow, uh, glow that eerie green color uh, or light that we saw earlier. And he's, it says, three times shall I flame green, first to bring death. And everyone that is attacking Chang's shop collapses and is dead. Uh, we then see the lamp years later, probably closer to the, um, the present, closer to uh, the time that Alan Scott is alive. We see a more modern sort of uh, architecture style and aesthetic, uh, but not in China anymore. We're now in presumably in America. Uh, where the lamp appears in either the laundry or the garbage outside of a mental institution. And uh, a guard and an orderly are talking about this curious old Chinese lamp uh, made of a strange green material. And the guard says, well, why don't you give it to old Billings? Uh, He's a harmless old coot. uh, And he makes lanterns out of uh, metals. He'd like this green lamp. That's really nice. Uh, I don't know if you need to call him an old coot. But uh, it's nice that you you are thinking about the patients. Uh, So he gives it to him, and he fashions it into a more modern lamp, a a train lamp, uh, the lamp that you see on Green Lantern's uh, chest emblem and also the the way that the lantern looks in the present with Alan Scott. Uh, After fashioning the lamp into this new, more modern style, it glows the eerie green color again uh, and cures whatever mental um, disease or disorder that Billings was afflicted by, and he can now think clearly. And uh, that is the, the, the sense that um, he brings. The second time he glows green, it glows, it brings life, or a new, a new, a new life for Billings, not in a mental institution uh, as, a, as a productive member of society instead. So that's nice. Um, we then cut back to Alan Scott passed out and the lantern's going to have a little monologue here. So I'm just going to read it verbatim, uh, because I think he says it best in his own words, his own words, its own words. Let's not gender the lantern. Uh, it says, you have heard the tale of the green lantern. Now to you, I bring fulfillment of the prophecy third to bring power for I am the flame of life. Green as are the plants, the growing things. You who are to have this power, you must use it to end evil. The light of the green lantern must be shed over the dark evil things, for the dark evil things cannot stand light. Power shall be yours if you have faith in yourself. Lose that faith and you lose the energetic power of the green lantern, for willpower is the flame of the green lantern, which is a a thing that, that translates over to the modern Green Lanterns with Hal Jordan willpower being uh, the power that causes the green uh, constructs and and all the powers of the Green Lantern. Obviously, in a more modern age, we have the other colors, willpower being green, yellow being fear, you know, pink being love. Uh, But that was not a thing for the vast majority of the Green Lantern's time. So that's um, that's a more modern thing. But it's cool that this sort of willpower is green is something that's established this early from from the jump. Alan Scott then wakes up uh, and he uh, is still hearing the lamp talking to him inside of his head. It's saying it would be well for you to utilize part to make a ring, a ring with my flame. To renew its power, the ring must touch the green lantern once every 24 hours. Uh, which is another thing that's been established right from the very first issue that is still a thing, although we don't often see the lanterns, you know, charging their rings up, but they are doing it. It's implied that they're doing it uh, once every 24 hours or more likely when their power level goes down. Alan Scott then fully wakes up uh, and is confused. He's looking around. He grabs onto the lantern and he then feels a weird sort of energy rush through him. And he he's thinking about what the ring or what the lantern told him uh, and he looks. He then looks around. And is like, oh no, all of my friends and, and coworkers are dead. 
and he picks up Jimmy, who is his friend from the cab. He gets a name uh, post-mortem. Uh, he, he thinks about what Jimmy said about Decker doing anything to get his way. Uh, so he must have done this. Alan Scott then says to no one, if Decker signs his name to the transaction, the build, uh, the bid to build the bridge, or rebuild it, I guess now, he won't be signing in ink, but in blood, the blood of these broken bodies. What a jerk. Uh, so, you know, Alan Scott makes his way through the uh, wilderness, uh, presumably back to civilization, because he's he's carrying the lantern this entire time, and he's got this weird urge to build... Uh, or to make a ring out of part of the Green Lantern with a bit of its uh, flame inside. And <laughs> he puts it on. He's like, why? I must have been mad. I wanted to kill a man. Decker. No, I must fight him another way. The power of the ring. I must try it out. I'd like to. And then suddenly he flies up in the air in a in a green sort of energy. And it flies him to Decker's house. And he's realizing, okay, if I think it and will it hard enough, the ring will do it. Um, and he gets to Decker's um, house in the mountains and is thinking to himself, I wonder if this power can do more, if I can travel through the fourth dimension to be able to go through objects. So he, he thinks it and he, and he wills it and he does. He, he, he starts to glow green and, it, and begins to pass through the wall. Uh, inside of Decker's house, we see Decker talking to his boys. He's telling them that they did a sweet job on blowing up the bridge. Now the government will take my bid. I'll make some nice dough on the deal. Yes, sir. Nice dough. Uh, maybe like a focaccia uh, or um, a challah. Maybe a challah bread. Uh, at this moment, Alan Scott begins to come through the other side of the wall uh, in a green glow. And all the boys and Decker are like, what? Huh? What's this green light? And... Uh, as Alan Scott appears, they think he's a ghost, um, but they realize that it is Alan Scott, the engineer, and he should be dead. Uh, so this must be a ghost. And Decker says, fools, he's no ghost. It's a trick. Shoot him. So they attempt to shoot him, but the bullets ricochet off of him. Uh, and then the the boys, you know, attack him with other means, like with a knife. But the knife, you know, breaks off. The tip breaks off on, on Scott's chest, Alan Scott's chest. Uh, then one of the boys comes up behind him and hits him with a wooden club, and that does it. That kind of that knocks him onto the floor, which uh, is, again, another thing that's straight from the jump with Alan Scott and the Green Lantern is that his weakness is wood. Uh, later on, the weakness becomes yellow with Hal Jordan and, and future lanterns, but uh, Alan Scott's weakness is wood. And he thinks this. He thinks, curious, lead bullets and steel knives don't get me, but wood does. Guess I'm only immune to metals, which... Interesting. Um, he also uh, he also realizes that he only possesses his normal strength. He doesn't have any super strength from the ring. Um, but he says, however, uh, I can handle myself in a fight, uh, so that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, he, he scares the boys into running away, and then he, he walks up to Decker. He says, now I'm going to work on you, Decker. And Decker says, now, now, don't be hasty. I'll give you money. I'll, I'll be your friend. I'll... And Alan Scott grabs him and says, okay, chum, just to show you how much I value our friendship, I'm going to take you for a little ride. Uh, and then Alan Scott does something that Superman also does, but Alan Scott does it while he's flying. And he sort of flies at super high speeds while carrying Decker by the collar, uh, scaring him and uh, asking him to confess. And Decker says that he will confess to what he's done. Um, they go back to Decker's office. And they draw up a confession, and Decker signs it. Uh, obviously, like I've said before in past episodes, that confession will not hold up in court. That's a confession under duress. Uh, but after signing it, it's not a big deal because Decker collapses dead uh, from the shock. Uh, and so Alan Scott said he's paid for the lives lost in the wreck, um, which I, I, I will say I'm not putting that death on Alan Scott. Uh, Alan Scott didn't do anything. Uh, Decker's guilt and, and shock got to him. Um, so uh, Alan Scott, as of this moment, is not a murderer like numerous other heroes uh, of the Golden Age. Uh, Alan Scott then thinks to himself, somehow I feel as if destiny has taken hold of my life, that this is only the beginning, that I must continue to fight against evil. Uh, and then back in his sanctum or office or workshop or whatever, he prepares for his new career. 
If I must fight evil beings, I must make myself a dreaded figure. Very much like Batman. That's a, that's a Bill Finger thing for you. Uh, I must have a costume that is so bizarre that once I am seen, I will never be forgotten. And then we see Alan Scott for the first time in this issue, uh, or ever, uh, other than the cover, in his full Green Lantern costume. And he says, And I shall shed my light over dark evil, for the dark things cannot stand the light. The light of the Green Lantern! And then we have the final little, you know, come back next time. It says, the man who suddenly appears out of nothingness whenever and wherever there is a wrong to be righted. The Green Lantern. Follow his further weird and exciting adventures in the next issue of All American Comics. So, that's the first issue um, that involves Green, Green Lantern, Alan Scott. I think it's a pretty good origin story. It 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 establishes a lot of backstory for the power, like where the power comes from. I mean, not obviously we don't know where the meteor came from. We learn that later, uh, much later, I think, probably not until the you know till the Golden Age heroes return um, in the eighties um, during their after their you know Silver Age sort of slump. Uh, but it, it establishes. You know, sort of the parameters of, of Green Lantern's powers. It's all willpower, so uh, very much like the Spectre, I feel like he can do a lot of stuff just by willing it hard enough. Um, but I think it's pretty good. Uh, uh, and so so that's that. That's All-American Comics number 16. That's Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Let's move on to the next one, uh, which is Action Comics number 26, uh, released May 23rd, 1940, with the cover date of July 1940. Uh, no debuts in this one. Uh, we got Superman. We got Zatara. Uh, Superman was written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Paul Cassidy, uh, and inked by Paul J. Loretta. And Zatara was written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn, drawn by Fred B. Gardner, as per usual. So let's get into it. So let's start with the cover. It is a, a classic scene of Superman carrying two gangsters, uh, up over the city, uh, just jumping, and they look—they look frightened. He looks, you know, serious like Superman does. Uh, it's a very standard Superman thing to do. Very standard Superman cover. It has nothing to do with what actually happens in this story, but still, it, it shows what Superman can do. Uh, we start our story on our in the uh, Daily Planet uh, advertising department, where a uh, bearded, bespectacled man in a fancy suit is talking to the head of advertising. And he's saying, but this is outrageous. Infantile paralysis and other forms of bone and joint malformations can be cured at my institution. And the advertising uh, manager says, sorry, it's against our paper's policy to accept advertising from any concern making questionable claims, but you may speak to the editor if you wish. Then we get the uh, sort of uh, caption box that's at the beginning of every Superman story that kind of explains what's going on. Uh, sometimes, and sometimes it just explains who Superman is. It says, Professor Clarence Cobalt, proprietor of the Cobalt Clinic, seeks to place an advertisement in the Daily Planet, but is startled to have his advertising copy turned down. Uh, so Cobalt marches into uh, George Taylor's office and says, Sir, do I demand an explanation? And uh, George Taylor basically reads him the riot act that's saying, like, fakers like you are a curse to humanity and should be behind bars. Uh, he talks about President Roosevelt's infantile paralysis fund. Uh, obviously, uh, if you know anything about, or if you don't, if you don't know anything about President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, he uh, suffered polio, uh, uh, and so he was in a wheelchair for the vast majority of his presidency. Uh, so uh, the the idea of infantile paralysis, which can often come from polio, uh, caused by polio, is a is a a cause uh, near and dear to his heart. So he has a, he has a fund for it. Uh, and and George Taylor says they're doing marvelous work uh, to to help children with this crippling disease. George Taylor also tells him that he doesn't care if some other paper has run his ads. Uh, They'll make not, they won't be making the same mistake. And uh, Professor Cobalt uh, raises his cane and says, Why, you insolent! And uh, this is when Clark Kent comes in, snaps the cane. And uh, Professor Cobalt says, How dare you! 
Uh, and uh, Clark says, and stay out. And Lois is suddenly there, and she's like, oh. And Taylor says, I never thought Clark had it in him. Uh, and this just shows that Lois's opinion of Clark is so wishy-washy, as we've seen in past issues. Just one act of confidence from Clark, and she's like, well, 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 Mr. Kent, looking quite dapper uh, in your confidence. I mean, she doesn't say that, but basically she's like, well, you know what? She says, my gosh, can it be that I've misjudged you? I mean, uh, if on the rare occasion he shows confidence, but every single other time he's like a little sniveling coward, no, I don't think you misjudged him. I just think that maybe your opinion is... It's like right at the line of whether or not you like Clark Kent and just it sometimes it gets pushed to I like Clark Kent and sometimes it gets pushed to I loathe you Clark Kent um, more, more likely the second one and Clark tries to like you know argue it away like oh I guess I just got so angry that I forgot myself and he's like oh I almost revealed my identity as Superman I, I actually don't think they'd think you were Superman uh, because they're clearly pretty dumb um if they can't tell that you are superman uh so i think you're fine uh but taylor uh comes around to the point and uh says that there's probably some material for an expose on professor cobalt's clinic uh so maybe you should go out and look for clues uh kent and uh, he says i'll look into it and lois says you mean we'll look into it <laughs> so they do they go to the clinic and they meet with um a, uh, a mother and her child coming out of the clinic. And it's weird, but it kind of looks like um, uh, the mother is wearing a, not a burqa, uh, but a, um, a hijab, uh, uh, a different type of Islamic head covering for women, which is which would be funny if that was true. But I think it's to denote that she's maybe um, not well off that she's covering her hair and head like this. I don't know why it's drawn like this, but I think it's, you know what? You know what? No, I'm going to say that she, um, she is, she is Muslim. And I think that that's, that's cool. Look at this diversity in this 1940s comic. Uh, but she explains that her son is being treated for, you know, some crippling disease and they just bought some pills from the clinic for $10. Now, if we do some inflation, um, calculating for a 19, 40 to today, uh, let's see, Bureau of Labor and Statistics, great. Uh, so we're going to put in $10 in uh, May of 1940 and calculate it for today. Uh, that is $219.32. Now, there is medication out there that costs more than that, um, but... $219 for, for medication is still a lot of money. Uh, so that's that's crazy. Uh, Lois and Clark ask to see one of the pills, and they open it up and they kind of taste it or whatever, which is dangerous. You shouldn't do that if it's real medication. But it is just a sugar pill. Um, they give the woman $10 for the entire bottle so that she's not out any money and uh, send them on their way. But now they know that this place is a fraud for sure. So... Lois, I don't know what the plan was supposed to be, because it says as prearranged, Lois enters the clinic first. I don't know if Clark's supposed to be somewhere doing something as Clark, but uh, Lois goes into the clinic and says that she's been limping for the last year and she, she wants to be examined. And the two doctors inside, um, Cobalt and Grafton, uh, his name literally has the word graft in it. I, I wouldn't trust him. Um, they are going to do a thorough examination of her. Um, and outside, Clark is turning into Superman. So I don't know what Clark is supposed to be doing as a part of the plan, because it's not explained. But he is turning into Superman. So he does his classic Superman thing and climbs up the side of the mansion uh, that this clinic is in and is listening uh, to the two doctors. And they're talking about uh, what, what, how wonderful it is for uh, advertising and a fake front um, will do. So obviously the, this clinic is a fake front for them to, you know, fraud people so they tell lois that um she has decalcification of the hip bone and it's a disease that will result in her death no it won't um she'll just have hip problems uh you know uh, and brittle brittle hip bone she might have to be in like a wheelchair but she won't die uh, and they she says they say that she needs this treatment which is 50 dollars and 
She says, $50, that's a lot of money, and this only lasts a week. So now let's go to the calculator and find out what $50 is in today's money. Um, $1,000, $1,096.61. So that's per week. And I mean, I don't know what insulin costs right now, insulin, but I mean, some people need to get insulin like weekly or, or monthly. And, and that stuff either was or is really, really expensive. So it's kind of a, a good equivalent uh, for what Lois is being asked to pay. So I mean, like, imagine you had to pay like almost $4,400 a month uh, for, for medication to keep you alive. That's a lot of people deal with that and it sucks. Uh, but Superman's heard enough. He knows that these dudes are frauds, and he's going to do something about it. So he meets up with Lois after she comes out of the clinic, and he says, wait here. I'm going to have a few words with these men. And he goes in, and he says, I've come here for one purpose, and to inquire about your, your medical background. And they're like, oh, a snooping reporter, eh? Because Cobalt remembers him from the Daily Planet office. And so they they throw him out on his, on his tuchus. And uh, Lois says, ho, ho, if it isn't the planet's tin hero himself, which is implying that uh, Clark is a weakling because tin is not a very strong metal. And he says, if there hadn't been two of them, and in his internal thoughts, he says, I'd like to knock their heads together, but I haven't enough evidence yet. You need evidence for head knocking. So, so there. Um, Inside, we see uh, Cobalt and Grafton looking out the window and they see Clark and Lois talking to each other and they're like oh it's a frame up they're working together and Grafton says let them leave them to me we then cut to outside and I don't know if, if Lois and Clark have started to walk away or if they're still standing there outside the window because this next scene is really really confusing to me at least so Grafton is out on the street chasing after Lois and Clark and he says give me that bottle and he grabs the bottle out of Lois's hands and throws it on the ground he says thought you were smart eh but your trick didn't work and then he says into the car quick and like Lois tells Clark like why don't you do something you're just sitting there like a bump on a log in the car and then they go back to the clinic so it it must be implied that Lois and Clark have walked away but also walked far enough that Grafton needs to use a car because because we go there's no panels in between it goes the panel with Professor Cobalt and Grafton looking out the window seeing Clark and Lois Grafton says leave them to me we then cut to Lois and Clark on the street with a car behind them and Grafton running up to them so did Grafton take a really really long time to go down and get his car and then chase after Lois and Clark or are they still outside of the clinic? And then he says, get in the car. And then he drives them to the clinic, which is right behind them. It's just really confusing. There should have been an implied, like, or like a text box, a caption box that said something like, you know, four blocks down, four, four blocks away from the clinic. It's because I, I was confused. And maybe I'm dumb. And maybe 1940 readers are way smarter than me. But it's really, really confusing to me. But enough of that. Uh, they're back at the clinic. They lock Lois and Clark into a room together, and Grafton and Cobalt are going to listen in on them to hear what they have on the clinic, what the Daily Planet knows uh, of their business. But Clark can hear them listening to them through the like the fake wall. And so instead, he talks for a half hour about uh, this lecture or this treatise he read on astronomy. Uh, Clark is interested in the stars because he comes from space. Um, they then separate Clark and Lois because Grafton thinks that, uh, Clark is the one who knows all the things because they're sexist and they don't think that Lois would know anything because she's a woman. Um, so they, uh, they bring Clark into this room with barred windows, which, why do you have those at your clinic? Why do you have a barred windows? And, uh, Clark pleads like, please give me some time to think and I'll, I'll tell you everything. So they're going to give him five minutes and no more. So they lock the door, uh, and leave him in there. Clark then takes off his, you know, he turns into Superman, uh, and he bends the bars, uh, of this room, which weirdly has barred windows. And then he jumps over to the window that, uh, is to the room that Lois is in, and he rips the entire window off. They don't hear this, apparently. They must be listening to really loud jazz music or something. 
um, because how do you not hear an entire window being ripped out of your house? Uh, Superman rushes in and grabs Lois and leaps off. Uh, she's got hearts over her head as he's carrying her because she loves him. Um, and so Superman brings her back to the Daily Planet, and she says, oh, I've just remembered that Clark is back there at the Murphy, Murphy at the mercy of those dangerous men. You've got to save him. And, and Superman thinks, oh, does she actually care about Clark Kent? Um, so she, he drops her at the Daily Planet and says, rush the story of your fake diagnosis into print. And he rushes back to the thing. Uh, four minutes and 30 seconds have elapsed. So he gets back into Clark's room, bends the bars back into place, and then hurriedly changes back into his Clark Kent clothes. They, um, the, the, two, the two fakers come back into the room, and Clark says, The Daily Planet is out to expose the clinic, and if possible, publish your secret records in order to prove your cure is a fake. Um, they then tie Clark to a pole. I don't know why they couldn't just lock the door again, um, whatever, and rush off to destroy the records at once. Clark snaps the bindings. Obviously, we know why they just tie him to the to a pole. It's so that he can show that he's really strong. It's Superman stuff. But um, So they rush off to destroy the records. Clark turns back into Superman and sort of chases after them. He, uh, as a distraction, he grabs a, a small safe and throws it on the ground and then jumps to stand on top of the doorframe. Um, uh, they rush out from the records room uh, to hear what the big uh, noise was. Clark flips, into, flips down from on top of the frame into the records room and puts a big dresser in front of the door. Uh, and then grabs the safe that the records are in and carries it out and puts it on top of the roof of the, the clinic. Um, in this time, the, the two fakers have busted into the records room and they see that the safe with the records are gone and they think that the reporter, Clark Kent, has something to do with it, so they rush back to the room that they're holding Clark in. Uh, Superman, at the same time, rushes back to the room and ties himself back up as Clark. And they come in, and uh, Grafton tells Cobalt that uh, the girl is gone from her room. And they're, for whatever reason, they're sure, they are positive that Clark Kent, who's tied to this pole, has something to do with the records. The entire safe, no human person, normal human person, can lift that big of a safe out of a room in that little bit of time. So I don't know why they're sure that he has something to do with it. But just as they're about to shoot and kill Clark Kent, uh, a newsy boy from outside says, read all about it, the fake infantile paralysis clinic. And they're like, what? So Cobalt rushes out to pay for uh, an extra edition uh, of the Daily Planet and says that girl reporter's story exposing her fake diagnosis. Um, they then realize that they have to release Clark Kent. They can't kill him because otherwise Lois will know that something has happened to him and they're likely the ones that did it. So they let him go. And uh, he turns back into Superman and goes and gets the safe off of the top of the clinic and uh, brings it to the Daily Planet and gives it to George Taylor. And tells him that these are, you know, the names and addresses of all of Cobalt's patients and all of the fake remedies that they've given them. And um, Superman rushes out. And um, as he is doing that, uh, George Taylor says, uh, don't go. Give me an interview. It'll make newspaper history. And Superman says, sorry, but history will have to wait. Uh, shortly after, Clark returns. And um, George Taylor sends him out on uh, to find a sample of the clinic's fake medicine. And he does, he goes and talks to, uh, he goes and talks to Tommy, the, the, the boy that he met with his mother outside the clinic, but they bought the medicine from him. So they didn't keep the medicine. So I don't know why he's going to ask him for the medicine that, that Cobalt and his fake clinic gave him. Um, but Tommy tells Superman that Cobalt was just there a little while ago and took away the medicine and told his mom that if they, you know, said anything to anyone about this, that, you know, they'd kill them both. So uh, Superman goes back to the Daily Planet 
and back to George Taylor's office and looks through all of the records of patients and memorizes all of them and then is off to go and talk to all of them. Um, George Taylor at that same time after Superman leaves says, I don't know what's keeping Kent, but I can't wait any longer. Get down to the clinic and get me the medicine sample uh, to Lois. And she says, now you're talking. So she heads out to get a sample from the clinic, uh, which is dangerous. But Meanwhile, Superman is talking to all these patients and is realizing that they've all been visited by Professor Cobalt and all the medicine has been taken. At the final place that he goes to, this is a little detour, uh, to fill up pages, uh, he's told by the father and mother of this girl that um, she is dying of paralysis of the chest um, because she was quote-unquote treated by Cobalt instead of a reputable doctor. Um, and they're sad about it. That if they'd only known, um, she needs to get on a hospital respirator at once, uh, or there's no hope. So Superman grabs the bed that the girl is in, brings her to Rockbilt Hospital, and um, brings and you know talks checks her in. And uh, the doctor says only Doctor Worthington, an expert on poliomyelitis, can save her, and he's fully 200 miles away. He could never get here in time to, to save her. I don't know why he needs to be here to put her on a respirator, but apparently he does. So the Superman runs and jumps the 200 miles and to gets to the Dr. Worthington's residence. And this is the part where it's like, what what is this? What is this? Why is this detour happening? He's, you know, Superman tells the doctor that he needs him to come with him. And he says, but the the radio just said a hurricane is arising. Hurricanes don't just arise. They are days in the making. And it would be, like, incredibly windy and stuff like that. Uh, and, and no mention of Superman having to travel through rain and, and wind to get to the doctor is mentioned. But apparently this hurricane is so bad that the doctor can't go back with Superman. But the Superman says... Doesn't matter, you're coming with me. Then we have some panels of Superman and the Doctor, you know, traveling through this hurricane. An entire house is up in the air. A tree is is uprooted. Like, I'm ta- when I say an entire house, I mean an entire house straight off the foundation is up in the air. Um, debris is batted away by Superman, and they make it to, to the hospital. Um, great. Uh, weirdly pointless panels. Uh... The doctor, you know, begins surgery or whatever to to save this little girl, which is great. Good. Um, meanwhile, at Cobalt's clinic, Lois is, is getting a sample when the two doctors come in, fake doctors, come in, and they say, oh, what is she doing here? I'm going to get her. And they get her, and they put her in this weird box that has a, a – it looks kind of like an iron lung, if you know what an iron lung looks like. Um, I'll probably post a picture of an iron lung and this panel just to show you the equivalent. Um, it, it's a box that is a, a special heating cabinet that is supposed to be uh, helpful for their paralysis cure at the Cobalt Clinic. So um, they put Lois in this box and they say within one hour she'll be ashes, um, which is bad for Lois. And Superman is busy, so you know he can't help her. Uh, when suddenly uh, a mob of parents and their um, crippled children rush in and grab the doctors and get Lois out of this heat box, they then cry, lynch them, lynch them. Uh, we then cut back to uh, we cut back to the Daily Planet where Clark has arrived and says, sorry, Chief, I couldn't get the medicine. And, Clark, and George Taylor says, never mind, I've already sent Lois to the clinic for some. Uh, so... Uh, Clark, knowing that this is dangerous, turns back into Superman and rushes to the clinic where he comes upon the scene of the two fake doctors mid-lynching. And so he busts the branch off uh, of the tree and saves them. And they say, save us. Don't let them get us again. We'll confess everything if you'll protect us. He says, okay, it's a deal. Uh, Superman fends off the angry mob, goes inside, and grabs another safe. They must have so many records and stuff that they need two huge safes. He brings it out, and this safe is full of money. Uh, and he says, uh, 
Hanging is too good for Cobalt and Grafton. Send them to jail and use this money uh, to send to Pre President Roosevelt's infantile paralysis fund. Um, so he, he gives that money to the angry mob, and he knocks out the two doctors, throws them in a police uh, patrol wagon, and uh, grabs Lois. And then, for some reason, he doesn't think that the police wagon can drive itself, not drive itself, be driven by a police officer to the police station. So he grabs it with Lois and jumps it to the nearest police station. And then he leaves Lois there. Like, what if she drove? What if she drove to the clinic? You just left her car there. Uh, but, I mean, we've never seen her drive. She probably just took a taxi. He deposits both Lois and the wagon at the nearest police station, and then uh, we then cut to weeks later, where we see George Taylor, Clark Kent, and Lois Lane talking, and Clark says, It did my heart good to see Cobalt and Grafton convicted for their crimes. George Taylor said, Congratulations to you both for the part you played in bringing them to justice. And Lois says, All the credit should go to Superman. And that's the end. Um, how do I feel about this story? I think it's a f fine story, I guess. It's it's silly and leaps in logic as per usual with Superman stories. Like, how did they not know that the window was ripped off of their building? Because, like, could you imagine what that sound would be? Like, imagine if just part of your house fell out. Like, if the window, say, if you're sitting next to a window, just imagine if that window was just ripped out of the building. That would be a huge sound. You would hear that all over the house. And, like, why do they think Clark Kent had anything to do with carrying an entire safe out of a room? They were going to kill him. Why was the hurricane in there? It's 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 par for the course with Superman stories. They get really silly. Um, but, but still, I think it was fine. Fine Golden Age Superman story. I have no other opinion about it. Uh, so let's move on to another hero who often has silly stories with leaps of logic. Uh, Zatara. Okay, so this story, this Zatara story is called Zatara, the Master Magician, and the Jagtooth Gold Mine. And the caption box at the beginning says, Into the frozen wastes of the far north, Zatara and Tong. Welcome back, Tong. Uh, racist depiction of an Indian person. Uh, travel by dog sled searching for a gold mine he has been commissioned to find. Or as we learn, refined. Uh, it starts out with uh, Tong and Zatara riding on a dog sled, uh, and they see a cabin down in a valley, and Tong says, we go round mountain to go down it many miles. And then, of course, the only reason that Tong is here is for him to make Zatara look superior. And so Zatara, being a dick, says, nonsense, Tong. Didn't you know our dogs had wings to fly? Look. And he gives the huskies wings and so they fly down um why you wouldn't just do that all the time i don't know they don't um so uh, as they approach the cabin someone from inside says don't come near go away and on the top of the cabin is a, f a red flag and it is the sign of the dreaded northland plague a f pretty sure a fake disease that doesn't exist so Zatara walks in anyways, and a woman says, Oh, I told you not to come in. You'll catch the plague, too. He won't. He's Zatara. Uh, she says, I tell you, he has the plague. We'll all die now. We have no medicine, nothing to fight it with. And Zatara says, um, Look on your wall. And he makes appear a medicine chest fully equipped with the medicine you need to cure the Northland plague. And... So they administer the the medication to uh, this woman's father. Her name is Annette Devere, and her father is named Francois Devere. Uh, they're French Canadians, uh, which I mean, Canada has a long history of, of French people, so that makes sense. Uh, they're in Canada, uh, just so you know, just so you're aware. They don't they don't ever say that they're in Canada, but they're in Canada. Uh, Zatara asks about the Jagtooth Mind. Um, Francois says, oh, you, sh um, you look for, he says, you look for the, the jagtooth, monsieur? Why for? Who are ye? And he says, it's a long story. I'm a friend of Henry Jardine who discovered it. And then he tells the story of, um, uh, Jardine telling him about the jagtooth mine, which, uh, I'll, I'll read it verbatim. Um. So he says, uh, Jardine says, I found the jagtooth two years ago. 
One day, a man came, shot me, threw me over a cliff, and I lost my memory. When I got to Dawson, I recovered my memory, but it was too late to go back to the Jagtooth. Now, so he shot you and threw you off a cliff, and you just, you just, you're fine. You had no problem getting back to Dawson. You didn't die? Okay. But it's still, it's too dangerous for him to go to the Jagtooth now because his, his, his health is too poor, probably from being shot and thrown off a cliff and having brain damage. So... Uh, Zatara agrees to go look for it, and and then we cut back to the cabin, and he's he's finishing his story, and Francois says the man who owns the Jagtooth is a very bad man. Stay away. Listen. And in comes uh, an Inuit uh, man, and he says, "No, Francois, you have strangers, eh? I come for Annette now. Come, girl, because as as we've learned." Um, Gardner, F. Fox, and Fred Gardiner, when they're put together, super, super racist. Um, so that's a bad combo. So he's going to come and take Annette for reasons we don't know. I'm assuming because he's attracted to her. Uh, because she's a white blonde lady. Uh, and every person that's not white, and people that are white, are like, oh, a white blonde lady. I must have her. So Zatara turns him upside down using magic, and and uh, this man says, uh, "Nobody make me silly like this." And so, um, and he he forces him out of the cabin and say, and and this guy says, I, "I'll get you for this." And he says, "Miss Stare," because he can't say "Mister." Um, and and Zatara says, "Anytime you say, I'll be waiting for you." Um, so, several days later, rather than, I don't know, giving him instructions on where the Jagtooth is, because obviously Francois knows about it. He knows what the Jagtooth mine is. So, we're just several days later, uh, and Francois's better, so that's great. But Zatara's still just, like, hanging around. I mean, I guess to protect Annette and Francois from Tony. This Inuit man's name is Tony. Okay. Um... Also, also the caption box calls him a half-breed, which is awful, which is really, really bad. Um, and I don't like to, I mean, I don't like racist depiction of characters, but obviously it's a part of this show is to talk about the comics of the 1940s and, or the Golden Age, and a lot of the comics had a lot of racist stuff in them, so I feel like not talking about it would be disingenuous. So uh, Francois wants to go on a caribou hunt, and he takes Zatara with him. Tong, I guess, stays by, stays behind. We haven't seen Tong since the first page. I, I'm just wondering why he was even in this story. Um, I guess we fi- we find out in the end. He's important in the end, but why Tong is just like sometimes he's there and sometimes he's not, and doesn't really matter. Uh, so. Uh, from on top of a cliff, we see Tony staring down at Zatara and Francois as they head off on their hunt. And he says, when, I, when they separate, I shall attend to Mr. Magician and also Francois. He'll get them both. He'll get both of them. Zatara and uh, Francois are going to uh, split up and each, you know, hunt for caribou on their own. Um, I've never been caribou hunting. I'm not a big hunter. I, I don't know if this is how you do it. Maybe you do just walk around the woods looking for caribou. But... Um, Suddenly, Zatara hears a wolf howl, and a pack of half-famished dogs leap at him. He uh, does a spell to make a bunch of frozen fish. According to the comic, the dog food of the north uh, appear, and the huskies uh, rush towards it and begin eating the fish. Um, Zatara says this smells of Tony's work to him, and so he sends out his spirit form to look around, check on Francois. He finds... Francois, who has spotted a caribou, and he's about to shoot it when uh, a pack of wild dogs, apparently Tony's wild dogs, um, rush at Francois and you know jump at him. They are they're biting down at him, doing dog things, doing what dogs do. Uh, wild dogs, I guess. I don't know how it can be both Tony's wild dogs, but also wild dogs. But I guess it can be. Uh, we cut back to the cabin uh, where Tony busts in and says, "Annette, come quick! Your father hurt." And she says, I'll bet you did it, but I'll come. He overpowers her and ties her to his dog sled. And uh, they uh, 
are off to an unknown destination, the comic says. Um, Zatara finds Francois, and or his spirit form finds Francois, and does a spell that says uh, dogs be balloons and uh, puffs up these dogs like balloons. I'm probably going to post that because it looks silly. Uh, what happens to the dogs after? Do they just float up into the atmosphere and then suffocate slowly due to lack of oxygen? Do they pop? Do they slowly deflate and, and, and sink back to Earth safely? We don't know. And how dare you ask? Uh, how dare you ask such a question? So Zatara has his body come to where his spirit is so that they can get, he can get Francois because his spirit form can't touch anything, obviously. So they are walking back to the cabin to have a net bind uh, Francois' wounds when they come upon Tong. Tong has been doing something this whole time. He's been getting wood. Um, but he smells something funny from the way the cabin is, is from like the direction of the cabin. They, you know, they hustle over there and they see that the cabin is on fire. Um, Tony must have started it after he, before he left. Uh, Zatara rushes in, Zatara and Tong, and Zatara turns the ceiling into a shower. So it rains down onto the fire, putting it out, saving the cabin and only getting water damage on all of the books. Uh, so Zatara says to Francois that Annette isn't here. Francois finds the tracks from the dog sled that Tony was driving and says that it must have a passenger on it because the, the uh, runners uh, have sunk deep into the snow more than a normal um, sled would. So uh, they say, you know, they, they, they don't say. They, they head off in search of, of Tony and Annette. And we then cut to Tony and Annette at the Jagtooth Mine. Uh, so um, Tony says, this is Jagtooth Mine. Annette, it belongs to me. I am wealthy. And Annette says, well, you stole it from Zatara's friend. He told me all about it. And she says, I hate you, as if that's not clear. Um, so Tony's plan is they're going to take the gold that he has mined from this mine. Has he tapped it completely? If so, that was not a very uh, um, plentiful mine. So I guess I don't know why Zatara is risking life and limb to try to find it if Tony could easily mine everything out of there. Or maybe he's just mining a certain part enough to set himself up and then then leave it, not tapping it for all it's worth. But uh, So he's going to get the gold. They're going to fly into Nome, Alaska um, and make their getaway. Uh, but first, Tony is going to set up some dynamite to uh, avalanche the entrance to the mine so no one else can get into it. And get its uh, gold. So maybe, maybe someday he'll come back and get the rest of it. Who knows? So he sets up the dynamite with a long fuse. And off they go. Uh, Zatara and Francois and Tong come upon the mine after shortly after Tony leaves. Um, and, and they say, oh, it's, it seems like they're only here a few minutes ago. Um, Zatara says, oh, it's the Jagtooth Mine. Let me go investigate. We don't have time, Zatara. What are you doing? Zatara looks inside and sees that um, he sees bags filled with gold. So did Tony just leave a bunch of bags filled with gold in here? Why? It doesn't. That's dumb. That's dumb. Leave the girl. Take the gold. Um, at that moment, the dynamite goes off and an avalanche comes down onto the three of them, uh, which would obviously kill them if, if it happened. But... Uh, Zatara throws a snowball in the air and casts the spell, Snowball, save me. Um, and so the snowball grows in size and sucks up all the avalanche and rolls up the mountain um, rather than down the mountain like a normal avalanche does, um, stopping the avalanche from crushing Tong and Francois and Zatara and uh, saving, saving all their lives. Uh, they are quickly losing... Um, France, not Francois. They're quickly losing uh, Annette and Tony. So uh, Zatara makes the three dog sleds appear um, so that they can, can at least maintain a, a similar speed to Tony and Annette, even if they've already gotten a, a, a sizable lead. Um, Zatara and Tong and Francois 
come upon three polar bears, uh, and and Zatara makes honey appear to distract them. Now, while it is true that uh, polar bears are a recent offshoot of uh, of the brown bear, I don't know if they particularly like honey. I think they more like fish and and seals and stuff. Uh, although bears will eat pretty much anything, so. Um, maybe a giant honeycomb would distract them long enough. Who knows? I mean, everybody likes honey, right? Even if even if you normally eat fish and seal. Um, Zatara even says, bears love to eat honey. Maybe they do. Uh, we then cut to Tony and Annette. They are at... Uh, well, wait a minute. They're at the Nome Air Company. So wait, are they not going to Nome, Alaska? Are they in Nome, Alaska? They can't be in Nome, Alaska because... Because Tony says, take me to the United States. Got girl to take to family there. When did Alaska... Alaska... Uh, Alaska. When did Alaska become a territory? Because, I mean, it's 1940. It was admitted to the Union in January 3rd, 1959. But it's part of Seward's Folly, which is a purchase that Seward, um, Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State, made with Russia to buy the land that Alaska is. So it was part of the United States before that. So if they're in Alaska, they're already in the United States. Does he mean the contiguous United States? Maybe. Maybe. Although I don't know, there's not a really big Inuit population in uh, the the contiguous United States at all. Um, So I don't know why. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I have to stop reading into these Zatara stories, they never make any sense, uh, and I'm just wasting everybody's time, but sorry. He trades gold for a ride to a really big bag of gold also, so um, he's wasting a lot of the stuff he got out of the mine uh, with this man with an airplane to fly them to the United States. He puts uh, Annette in there and climbs in uh, at the moment that Zatara, Tong, and Francois come upon the airfield, he shoots at Zatara and grazes him on the forehead uh, and knocks him down. And the plane begins to take off, uh, takes off into the sky. Uh, Francois and Tong kind of help Zatara up. He was just grazed. He was just sort of dazed by the bullet. So that's good. Um, when and which Then he turns Tong into a... Uh, um, and I, it says a winged Iron Man, which Iron Man doesn't exist yet at this point in Marvel. So, I mean, technically, Marvel stole Iron Man from Zatara. Yikes, Marvel. Not a good look. Not a good look at all. Um, I'm going to post this. Uh, Tong looks very, very funny. He looks like... I don't even know what would I would even do equivalent of. He looks like an Iron Man. He's got a propeller on his head. He's got wings. And uh, Zatara sends him up to uh, go after the plane and bring a net back. So Tong does. He flies up there. And he uh, gets alongside the plane. And Tony attempts to shoot him out of the sky. But obviously he's made of iron. So it just dings right off of him. Uh, Tong flies up. Punches Tony in the chin. Uh, and, and forces the plane to land. Uh, and 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 uh, gets Annette out, brings him, brings her to his her father, and they call the Royal Canadian Northwest Mounted uh, Police, which are the Mounties, uh, and they arrest Tony. And uh, Francois thanks Zatara for all of his help, um, and then Zatara says, you know, oh, not 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 at all. Uh, no need for thanks. On the contrary, by pursuing Tony, I found the Jagtooth gold mine and the gold Tony stole. I think Mr. Jardine in New York will be glad to hear about it. Two birds with one stone. And that is the end. Uh, again, uh, I need to stop uh, freaking out about how nonsensical uh, Zatara stories are because they're always nonsensical, uh, and their logic doesn't ever make any sense, uh, and things don't add up. Uh, not even talking about the magic, talking about everything outside the magic. The magic, I, you know, I, I put on my disbelief, or my dis, uh, suspending my disbelief, and I'm like, yes, magic exists. But it's like, why does the human logic not make any sense? Um, so, so yeah, so that's Action Comics number 26. 
And that is our final issue. Um, sorry for the short one, just the two, uh, but, uh, you know, like I, I had problems over the holidays, and so I wanted to make sure that I did actually get one out, uh, like I said I would, um, after, you know, breaking a promise twice. But, uh, but hopefully, hopefully you guys, you know, had patience with me and understanding. We all get it. The holidays are busy. So, so hopefully, hopefully you're not too mad at me. But, um, but yeah, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, as always, uh, hit us up on our socials. Uh, they're all going to be in the show notes, Instagram, Twitter, threads. I've been getting a little bit better about doing things on threads and Twitter. Not, not as, obviously not as consistent as Instagram. Instagram's just a much better medium for this very visual product that we are dealing with. So the Instagram is definitely the most active. So, I mean, maybe give me a follow over there. Throw a like or two my way. You know, that dopamine hit feels good. Um, I, I want to I wanna put a New Year's resolution to everyone out there, everyone listening. Um, if you like the show, if you don't like the show, uh, if you if you think that there if you like the show but you think there are things that I could improve on, go go out and uh, give the show a review on iTunes and Spotify and, and whatever you wherever you can review the show um, as a New Year's resolution to me your you know your lovable host uh, of your possibly favorite podcast um, or least favorite podcast but you still listen because you just you're just so invested in the story in the storylines. Uh, but I, I would really appreciate it uh, as, a, as a sort of Christmas gift and a New Year's resolution uh, to me if you could do that. I know every podcast asks you to do that, and I hate I hate it when they do that. Uh, but, I mean, there's, there's a reason they do. It's because it works. Uh, but if you don't, no skin off my back. Uh, but I think that's going to do it. I will see you on today again uh, on Issue by Issue Crisis because there is a a bonus episode of Issue by Issue Crisis as a way to make up for missing last Friday. Uh, in in the podcast feed at this moment, there should be an Issue by Issue Crisis. Uh, so I'll see you over there. Bye. Bye.